Well, good morning. Hope you've had a thank you. Uh, I hope you've had a good morning this morning. Uh, belly's full of food. It was fun to worship together this morning, and uh, just reflect on uh, really all of what this week is about. Some of us were at the Good Friday service on Friday. We reflected a lot on uh, Jesus's last couple of hours. Today we get to uh, focus on brighter things, that, that Jesus rose again from the dead and the implications of that. We are going to start with this little, little poll that I thought was, was interesting. This was a study done by, uh, by Barna in, in 2020. They surveyed uh, self-identifying Christians, those who say uh, that they, would, they are a Christian, which... Uh, you know, sometimes can be a little bit murky, the definition of that, so that might play into this a little bit. But of those who self-identified as Christians, they asked them what their view of the afterlife is. What's going to happen after you die? And interesting to me, I, I, I'm a little shocked at some of these numbers, that only 54% said that they will experience heaven. Some just plainly said, I don't know, I don't know what's going to happen after death. Some thought there would be some sort of middle ground in which maybe there would be a time of purification or, uh, or, or a little bit of punishment prior to heaven. What I thought was particularly interesting is that you have a group of people who, who well, reincarnation's interesting on that too. 2% think they're going to go to hell, even though they call themselves Christians, which is another interesting kind of thing. But the thing I, I want to focus on is... This, this idea of not knowing, not sure, and this idea of no afterlife. 13% of Christians said, well, you know, I don't think there's anything past this life. It's just this life, and when I die, that's it, into the nothingness. That, uh, that 13% translates to about 28 million self-identifying Christians who would say that. Now, in some ways, it's, it, it sort of makes sense when you think about the fact that really all of our experience in life points to life ending at death, right? Zombies, vampires, uh, superheroes who rise up from the grave or whatever, like these things are fictional. These, these things don't exist in our world. Instead, what what all the evidence seems to point to is that's the end. So what evidence do we have that there is an afterlife? How, what evidence do we have that there is something beyond this? Is it, is it that some people, um, you know, apparently died and had saw white lights and suddenly that proves something to us? Or a little boy who died for a certain period of time, you know, said he experienced heaven and we're like, yeah, look, heaven exists. Because really... There's plenty of evidence beyond these limited occurrences that would point to the fact that death is the end of everything. Death is the end of life. Maybe the better question is not why do 13% of self-identifying Christians believe there's no afterlife? The better question might be why do 54% of Christians believe there is an afterlife? Let's pray and we're going to take a look at that this morning. Lord, just thank you for this day. Thank you for uh, the fact that the church has, has chosen to commemorate your resurrection uh, yearly around this time, that we 
can just take time out of our, our yearly calendar, our, our busy schedules, to if at no other point in the year we think about this, that we set this aside to think about the implications of your resurrection. This, this most defining moment in all of human history, and what that means for humanity, what that means for our world, but also what that means for us as individuals. Lord, I pray as we look at this this morning that um, you would just be our teacher and that uh, you'd help me to step out of the way and just make uh, your words here very, very clear. pray this all in your name. Amen. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 today. The context of this passage that we're going to look at is, uh, is really Paul asking a question of the Corinthian believers, which is that some of them were claiming there wasn't a resurrection from the dead. And so he asked them, how can you claim this? How can you claim that there's no resurrection from the dead? Because if there is no resurrection, which by the way, from a humanistic standpoint, that makes a whole lot of sense. Do dead bodies rise up? No, they don't. That, that, that just doesn't happen. So you had at least a group of people in Corinth who were saying, yeah, that's, that's too fantastical. Like, like, that is fantasy. That is not reality. Dead bodies do not raise. But he said, if that's true, and dead bodies do not raise, then that means Christ did not rise, Right? And that means everything that we're proclaiming to be true from the Bible, any biblical truth is worthless. And worse, it makes us liars, the fact that we claim that it's truth. And, if, and, and, and our faith is worthless if there's no resurrection from the dead. We're still in our sin. We're still bound by sin's consequences. Uh, our Christian friends and family are all truly gone. We'll never see them again. And we truly, if there is no resurrection from the dead, we truly only have this life. And if we only have this life, man, we're about the most miserable lot there is. This is all Paul's arguments. I'm not making this stuff up. He, he makes this list. But then he says this right after the, these arguments he just made. Look at verse 20. He says, but now... Christ has been raised from the dead. Christ has been raised from the dead. Now, we're not going to take time this morning to, uh, to go over the evidence of that. Um, in fact, if you're curious about some of the, that evidence, uh, Paul lays it out in the beginning of this chapter, of, of chapter 15. Um, I taught on this a couple of years ago. There's a little QR code on your handout that you can scan and listen to that. That'll give you plenty of evidence that, that, that Paul uh, gives us in the early part of this chapter. Um, but I, I like what, uh, what Sir Lionel Luckhu said. You ever heard of Mr. Luckhu? Um, it's a great name. Uh, Sir Lionel Luckhu holds the Guinness Book of World Records for the most murder trial wins. He's a, he's a lawyer, and he has won 245 murder, murder trial verdicts, 245. And this is what he says. don't think I have the quote. Oh, I do have the quote. There it is. He says, I have spent more than 42 years as a defense trial lawyer, appearing in many parts of the world, and I'm still in, in active practice. 
I have been fortunate to secure a number of successes in jury trials, and I say unequivocally, the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ is so overwhelming that it compels acceptance by proof, which leaves absolutely no room for doubt. The bottom line is, unless you're coming from a, from a, a particular viewpoint, and you're not willing to move off of that viewpoint, then the evidence for the resurrection is really overwhelming. And, and again, Paul gives ample proof in the beginning of this chapter to that end. But for our purposes this morning, we're not going to cover that. We're simply going to come from a premise that Christ has been risen from the dead. And look at the implications of that. It says, but Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. Christ's resurrection was, was a, a singular event in all of history. But it doesn't stand alone. His resurrection is the first fruits of more to come. First fruits means, uh, so if you were, you were a, a, a farmer, uh, your first crop that came in, your, your first, let's say, apples from your orchard tree, for that season, that first group of apples would tell you what the rest of the crop is going to be like, right? That you know more apples are coming, it's just an indication that, that this is the first of a bunch of, of apples coming, and kind of the nature of those apples. Is, is it a good season for apples, or is it a bad season for apples, right? You'll know what's coming. That Jesus' resurrection is not, does not stand alone, it is the first of many resurrections. Look at this, verse 21. He, he says, for since by a man... By a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. We looked at this uh, just a couple months ago, right? Adam and Eve brought death into our world and brought death to us. They were the first fruits of death, right? And, and the, re, the reality of, of how we live today, the reality of ever impending, the ever-impending doom of death, that all of us are headed toward that, we're marching one day closer every day, one minute closer every minute, we're all headed to death, they caused that. But look at the contrast. Christ brought life. Christ in his resurrection from the dead... He was dead and, made, and was made alive. We are dead, and he made us alive. Verse 23 says, but each one in his own order. There's an order to this. Christ is the, is the first fruits. After that, those who are Christ at his coming. Then comes the end, when he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has established all rule and all authority and, and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. So he gives kind of a running um, chronology of what's going to happen, what has happened and what's going to happen. We know death is everywhere. It rules with final authority in our world. The truest statistic ever is that every one out of one people die right? You will die. It will happen. 
but it will be abolished. Death will be abolished. Well, how do we know that? Just because someone promises that? No, because we have the one who conquered the grave who is standing for us. There's this order that he lays out where Jesus rose from the dead, the first fruits, right? Then he's going to come back, and those who are Christ will rise from the dead too. Bunch of more resurrections. The world will end. Jesus will hand the kingdom, which is Jesus' followers, right? The, the people of God. He will hand them over to the Father. And then Jesus will destroy all power and authority in this world. And he will be the sole power and authority. But then he also has to, you know, throw in this little thing of like, well, yeah, not, not the sole power because God is the ultimate power, right? So, so yeah, he, he'll rule over everything in this world, but then his power and God's power, God the Father's power will become all-powerful, right? Now, at least in this world at this time, we know that there are powers in this world, there are authorities in this world. Um, we have a certain level of autonomy, uh, which is a, a, a type of power in this world. But that's all granted power by God, right? He's given us that power. But Jesus will become the power. Everyone will bow to him. Every knee will bow to him. Every tongue will confess. He is Lord. He is ruler. He is king. And then, after that happens, death will no longer exist. Death will be abolished. Death will be wiped out. Death will be eliminated. Which I don't know about you, I can't even imagine a world without loss. Right? We live in a world of loss. People are dying all the time. We have all lost friends and family members. And, and I could still, I mean, I'm, the one that comes to my mind is I'm thinking of my grandma. I did her funeral, right? She is gone. I have not talked to my grandma in a decade. Why? She's not here. Because death is a reality. But at this point, death will be abolished. No more. Then Paul goes on kind of a long, slightly convoluted uh, explanation and clarification here uh, that I'll, I'll sum up for you here. He says, verse 27, he says, For he's, he has put all things in subjection under his feet. God the Father has put all things under the subjection of Jesus' feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he, he is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, so that God may be all in all. Did you catch all that? <laughs> Lots of subjected and subjected and subjected and subjected. Bottom line is, everything will come under Jesus' authority, and everything will come under the Father's authority, and they will be over all things, right? Now, look at uh, 29. Otherwise, what will, what about those who are baptized from the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are they baptizing for them? Jesus is about to give two logical arguments to kind of break down this idea that there is no resurrection or that, that, that uh, there's no possible resurrection, right? 
The first one is kind of a weird argument um, because we can't relate to uh, baptism for the dead. Anybody ever been baptized for someone who's dead? Huh? Anybody? Uh, yeah, I mean, we don't do that, right? Now, uh, there was a practice in this time uh, that was based on a, on a local cult um, that they were being baptized for the dead. Um, they, they believed that there was a purification process that could go on for someone who's passed away, and, and they would do that by being baptized for them. Now, this had seeped into the church, and it, and it, it had actually seeped into the thinking of these people who were saying there's no resurrection, right? But think about the logic of that. He's trying to break down their logic. He's like, you guys don't believe in the resurrection for the dead, but then you're also baptizing yourself for those who are dead. Do you see the illogicalness of that? Like, that is just weird. Why would you do that? If there's no resurrection from the dead, your own logic is illogical, right? Um, uh, we know this, right? We, we, people are illogical all the time. I don't know if you notice this. I pay attention to this kind of stuff. You know, it is strange to me that you have people who are complete um, naturalists. They're like, every cause, every effect, everything in our world is natural. It's natural causes, nat natural consequences. There's no supernatural things. But then that same group of people when their aunt is sick in the hospital, we'll go pray for them. What? Like, how does that work? Uh, I was always amazed, uh, shocked at times, uh, when I worked in the funeral business, that you had these families of the deceased who are, uh, who, their family had never been to a day of church ever. Maybe they came to an Easter at some point, right? But they had never been to church ever, and, um, and the deceased had never been to church ever, uh, and they cared nothing about eternal things. They lived in a way that they didn't care anything about eternal things. And yet, what do they ask for at the funeral? A pastor. I just never got it. Like, why, why, are, we, why are we doing this, right? Seems illogical. He's pointing out their, their lack of logic here. And he goes on, he says, why are we in danger every hour? I affirm, brother, by the boasting in which you, and which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. If from human motives I fought the wild beasts at Ephesus, what does it profit me? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. He's giving a second logical argument. They knew Paul really well. They knew what was going on uh, in Paul's life. They knew what he had suffered in fact, he says, I die daily, which doesn't mean he actually physically died and rose again and physically died and rose again and physically died. He's saying every day is a struggle for me. Why? Because it was really, really hard for Paul to be doing what he was doing in the world that he lived in. When there was so, so much animosity against his ministry and Christians in general. It was really difficult. Paul lived a very, very dangerous life in which he was beaten many times. He was shipwrecked many times. Uh, he had to fight off wild beasts uh, when he was traveling. Um, he gives an example here of, I fought wild beasts at Ephesus. He's probably given a hypothetical here because Ephesus was one of the places where, where they would send Christians into the ring to be uh, torn apart by ravenous animals. He had never experienced that, but Paul was definitely in danger of that. He says, why would we live this way? Why would we do this if 
there were no resurrection. What a waste of life to suffer in such a way for the gospel and there be nothing beyond this life. Instead, what, what we should do, his argument here is, the Roman and Greek philosophers would say things like, let us eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die, right? He's like, let's just do that. Why would we live in such a way in which there's so much danger to my person and so much hardship that I go through every day if I'm not living for something eternal, if I'm not living for the resurrection? He finishes this section and says, do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Become sober-minded as you ought and stop sinning. For we have no knowledge of God. I speak, for some have no knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. What he's trying to encourage them is that the, the Corinthian church, many of them were being much influenced by the culture around them. Some of these ideas about resurrection were things because they were hanging out with people who had bad theology on these things, who didn't understand resurrection. And so he says, stop listening to bad theology. Stop listening to bad information. Stop hanging around people who are going to influence your thinking in this way because it's plain wrong. I think today, uh, more often than not, we have access to some really bad ideas, and it's not usually in our friends. Sometimes it is. But there's a plenty of bad ideas out there on the, the internet. Plenty of bad ideas out there on pod, podcasts that call themselves Christian. S stay away from bad theology. It will influence you. Here's his point. Jesus' resurrection was the first of many future resurrections for those who are his before death is finally eradicated. Jesus' resurrection was the first of many future resurrections for those who are his before death is finally eradicated. He goes on. He says, but someone will say, how are the dead raised? And with what kind of body do they come? This is a very logical argument. In fact, I've heard this argument brought to me from people. How can there be a resurrection if we know the realities of what happens to bodies when they die. Uh, again, in funeral business, the couple of worst days of my funeral business life were digging up caskets out of the ground, and we had to open them up and transfer the body into another casket. Body's not looking good, okay? Things, you decay very quickly. It's ugly. I don't know about you, but I do not want to be raised in that body, Right? He's like, how does that work? Are we going to be raised and we're, we're all going to look like zombies walking around with, you know, uh, all decaying bodies, our arms falling off and stuff? And then what about, like, cremation? How's, how does that work? Are, are we going to, like, somehow become these, these ashy uh, figures that, that kind of blow up and, and our ashes are going to be walking around or something, right? Let's just think logically here. He says this, 36. He says, you fool, which is pretty strong language, actually. He's like, come on, are you kidding me? He says, that which you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And that which you sow, you, did not, you do not sow the body which is to be, but a bare grain, perhaps of wheat or something else. But God gives it a body just as he wished, 
and to each of the seeds a body of its own. Okay, another little bit of convoluted sentences. I can't even get them out. Um, his point is this. Are seeds what they become? Think about seed. Is that what they become? Here's a grain of wheat. Does that, that becomes that. Those things look similar? No, they're very different, right? Uh, here is a pine tree. That becomes that, okay? Are, do they look the same? No. Uh, how about uh, a mustard seed? There you go, mustard seed creates that. Look anything like each other? No, his point is this, that a seed does not become the same, does not have the same type of body when it grows up, okay, when it becomes the next thing. Oh, there's you guys. There's, uh, that's not anybody in particular. I almost thought about putting one of your pictures up there, but I didn't know what that would say. So uh, there's us, right? <laughs> and uh, we don't know what we're going to look like, right? But it's not going to be that. We're going to look something different, okay? He goes on with his argument. He says, all flesh is not the same flesh. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one flesh of men and another flesh of beasts and another flesh of birds, and another of fish. There are also heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is one, and the glory of the earthly is another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. Another long, convoluted idea, which is super, super simple, though. All bodies are not the same, okay? Just like seeds and their result are not the same, different bodies are not the same. Human bodies don't look like cattle bodies, right? Cattle bodies do not look like bird bodies. Bird bodies do not look like fish bodies, right? They look different. There's different planetary bodies that look very, very different from uh, earthly things, right? If you look at pictures, I love looking at pictures of like uh, that the Hubble telescope takes sometimes. I mean, it's, it's amazing what is out there. But... That stuff looks nothing like this stuff, right? The, the extraterrestrial looks way different than the, than the terrestrial. That's his point. They're all cool. The sun's cool. The sun's hot, actually, but the sun's cool, right? The, the moon's cool, right? But they're cool in different ways. A, a bird is cool to look at. A fish is cool to look at. But they're cool in different ways, right? That's the glory part of this. Here's his point in 42. So also is... The resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body, it is raised an imperishable body. These bodies are very, very temporary. As I get older, I am more and more aware of how temporary my body is. I folded my ankle the other day, and I'm like, I've been gimpy all week, right? I'm just thinking, man, I would not have done that when I was 22, right? These bodies just start to break down. In fact, we lose 330 billion cells every day. 330 billion cells, right? Temporary. We're losing it. But we will be raised imperishable, eternal, Never expire, never wear out, never deteriorate. Again, I don't know about you, but I can't even picture what that looks like. I can't even picture what that would be like. Verse 43, it says, It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in 
glory. Dishonor is, it means nothing admirable or enviable about us. Again, I'm talking a lot about funeral business today, but if you look at a human corpse, there's nothing enviable about that state. No one goes, man, I really wish I could look that good. No. It's not the way it works. It's unimpressive. It's an empty shell. No one wants to be that way, right? We would rather be living. But we will be raised to glory. We will be raised to a magnificent new body full of greatness. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. These bodies are weak. Can we agree? They're frail. They're vulnerable. Even the strongest person on the planet dies when they're shot with a bullet. Right? One little bullet. The tiniest of diseases attack our body and totally wipe us out. And a dead body, again, is, is this ultimate symbol of powerlessness and weakness. But while we're sown, the idea is like we're put into the ground weak, we'll be raised powerful. We'll be raised capable and dynamic and breaking free of the limitations of what our current bodies experience. Capable of amazing things beyond anything we can imagine. Verse 44, it is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. Natural body being a creation of this world, designed for this world. Spiritual body is a creation, a heavenly creation, fitted for heaven. Now he goes off a little bit here and has a little bit of a a discussion about natural and spiritual bodies and the differences between those things. says, "If, if there's a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. So also it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man is from the earth, earthly. The second man is from heaven. As is the earthly, so are also those who are earthly. And as is the heavenly, so are also those who are heavenly. Just as we have borne the image of the earthly, we also will bear the image of the heavenly. This is his way of proving to us I don't know if it's that compelling for us, but it would have been compelling for first century Corinthian people, proving to us that this natural body is not all that there is. There has to be a spiritual. There has to be that different type of body that we're raised to. We're natural now, we will be supernatural. We're earthly now, we will be heavenly. Point on your handout if you want to fill it in is resurrection bodies will be very different from our earthly bodies. Resurrection bodies will be very different from our earthly bodies. And some of us are saying, thank goodness, this thing's breaking down. He goes on. He says, now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the, the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery, We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. He's rehashing the principles he just went over. These these bodies can't exist in heaven. They they, they were fitted for this, this 
plane of existence, not that plane of existence, but we need these heavenly, imperishable, eternal bodies, right? Now, he says, I'll, I'll tell you a mystery, which mystery means something that we can't fully understand, that he's going to explain it somehow, in some way to us, but we won't fully get it. We just can't get it. He says, here's the mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will be changed. Sleep is a euphemism for death. Not all of us will die. Our, our, death will not be our final estate. It will just be a temporary state of being for us. But that temporary state of being is going to end in a change. Change is going to come to us. And, 52, he says, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. In a moment, he's like, this is not going to be some sort of evolutionary change, some sort of long arc of of changing from this body to that body. Eventually, we'll get there when we grow up enough, with enough years and decades, we will eventually get to this state. He says, no, instead, this change will be instantaneous. In fact, he says, in a twinkling of an eye, which is literally like, if you can picture this, one eye twitch, one eye movement. So if I'm looking there and I look there, right, or that, that was my whole head. If I look there and I look there, right, like that, that quick. In one movement of an eye, the dead will be raised. The trumpet will sound, which is a reference to Jesus' words in, in Matthew 24, where he says, and he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of the sky to the other. We will be gathered together in a twinkling of an eye. We will be transformed. Temporary mortals into eternal immortals. 54, but when the perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that was written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. I love this section. He's really kind of trying to now sum up a lot of the idea, ideas that he's been stating so far. He's been moving like a train getting to its destination, moving through some of these, these principles and these realities about the transformation. But this is the point. The point is that the, the follower, for the follower of Jesus, the power that death held over us is gone. Our world is gripped under the power of death and the fear of death. Death's defeated for us. It's done with. It was defeated 2,000 years ago. Death can never beat us. Just like it didn't beat Jesus 2,000 years ago, it will never beat the follower of Christ. Death can't take us down. 
Death's power lies in sin. The wages of sin is death. The result of sin is death. The consequences of Adam and Eve's, Adam, Adam and Eve's sin, it was death for all mankind. They, they sinned, we die. But then also God's law came in and showed us that just like they were sinners, we're sinners too. So our sin condemned us to death. But, verse 57, but one of the greatest connectives, I would say the greatest connective in all of Scripture, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is not a victory that we have to somehow secure. Back in uh, World War II, the end of World War II, they celebrated VE Day, which was Victory in Europe Day, right? Anybody remember what they did to commemorate that with their hands? Anybody know? Yeah. It's not the peace sign. It's victory, right? The V. That was a long, hard-fought battle. Long world war that culminated in victory. There was also, I didn't know this until I was studying this this week, that there was a VJ Day. You guys know that? Victory in Japan Day, right? Guess what they did commemorate that with their hands? Right? Victory. I think we should uh, appropriate that. Right? We have VD Day. Victory over death day, right? I, I knew there was going to be somebody. I knew there was going to be somebody. You guys sat in the back. You get slackers back there. Victory over death day. All right, moving on. That, that we can commemorate this because it's not something we have to fight for. It's not something we have a long, hard-fought battle against. We don't have to conquer sin. Sin has been conquered. Death has been conquered. We're just waiting for the day for it to come. It's in, chrono in the chronology. It's set. It's a fixed time in the future. It is going to happen. We can celebrate it now. We can say we have victory over death. Point on your, on your handout if you want to fill it in. Is Jesus has given his followers the victory over sin, so death now has no downside. Jesus has given his followers the victory over sin, so death now has no downside. That's why Paul could live the way that he lived, is that it didn't matter. What's the worst that the world could do to him? Take his life? Great, victory. That works well for me. Now, he says all of these things to help us put in context in our minds, hey, we have this victory over death, what Jesus' resurrection means our resurrection. What do we do with this? I mean, it's great to celebrate it, right? It's great to throw the fingers up and go victory over death, right? But this is actually what he says we should do with it. He says, therefore... My beloved brethren, my brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, 
always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. This is the reality of how this should cause us to live, is that we be steadfast, literally saying we will set ourselves in place and we will not budge. Though our world really, really, really wants to conform us, really, really, really wants to draw us into their version of the truth, which is most of it's really a pack of lies, and they don't even know it. He says, be steadfast. Don't move. Be immovable. Movable literally means impossible to cause to move locations. Be that way. Stay grounded in the truth. No matter how much this world tries to push on us, tries to get us to compromise just in small ways, just move a little bit. Like, you don't have to go way over there, but just kind of scoot to the side a little bit. Can you do that for me? And we say no. We're going to stay fixed, steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Abounding means doing way more than the minimum. You can, you're, you're allowed to spend your life to waste your life on the Lord's work. Because you can spend it all, and there's way more coming. And by the way, just to be clear, the Lord's work is not working in the church. The Lord's work is not being a missionary. The Lord's work is you in your everyday life, glorifying God in your relationships with people, loving people, serving people, being Jesus in the world. We can do that. Because it's not wasted. It's not empty. It's not useless. We've got nothing to lose by giving everything. Because this is not the end. The point on your handout, if you want to fill it in, is so don't ever stop holding to the truth while giving your whole life for the Lord, no matter the consequences. Don't stop ever. Don't ever stop holding to the truth while giving your whole life for the Lord, no matter the consequences. To me, one of the clearest examples of this is Jim Elliott. Right? I think we, most of us know his story. I love this quote that's at the bottom of your handout. He said this before truly giving up his life. He didn't know he was going to give up his life, but people were telling him it's a really bad idea. Do not go down there. You could die. Right? You could die, Jim. Those people are, are brutal. This is not how we do missionary work. We don't take unnecessary risks like this. And Jim says, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. I love it. I love it. Let me pray. Lord, we are so thankful for your resurrection and what that means for us, the resurrection life that we now have secured for us because of what you've done. We now know without a doubt that we will be 
raised back to life. That no matter what our days hold for us, no matter how many um, difficult things come into our life, uh, even if our lives are taken, that it's okay. There's no downside. There's only upside for us. That we will rise. We will rise to, to a better life, to better bodies, to a better existence than we have now. Lord, help us to both stay fixed and immovable on the truth, but at the same time, be completely self-sacrificing to walk wherever you want us to walk, to say whatever you need us to say, and to live for you no matter what the cost is, especially as that cost is increasing in our country. Pray this in your name.